0: This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark.
1: This is Season 5 of Office Hours. Our theme is New Life in the Shadow of Death. We're talking about sanctification, the teaching of Scripture that believers in Christ freely accepted by God for Christ's sake alone and united to Christ through faith alone are being gradually and graciously conformed to Christ. As we understand Scripture in the Reformed and Presbyterian churches, God the Spirit uses means or instruments to bring us to faith, and one of those is prayer. And in these last few episodes of this season, and in the most recent episodes of this season, we have been thinking about prayer as one of these instruments or means, and particularly the Lord's Prayer. Joining us to walk us through the Lord's Prayer and how we should think about it, understand it, and use it is Dr. Steve Baugh, professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. Steve has taught here since 1982 and is the author of several articles, two Greek grammars, and he's a contributor to the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary. All these and more are available through... The Bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. This is part two of our discussion about the Lord's Prayer. As you and I are talking, there are a lot of people in the United States and elsewhere who are looking for work maybe in between jobs. And that's a source of tremendous uncertainty and doubt and fear. And again, the temptation may be to sort of fold in on oneself. And what the believer needs to do is to do the opposite and go to the Lord and say, I am frightened. I'm nervous. I'm uncertain. Lord, help me. Grant me a measure of confidence and peace as I seek to fulfill my vocation in this world and to do the things that are necessary.
2: If I could interject something personal at this point, people think that because we work in an academic environment, we're in an ivory tower and don't really have to worry about these things. But I think your audience should know that both you and I are speaking from a lot of personal experience here. I have 13 years of higher education that I paid for myself, and there were a lot of times when I was wondering if I was on the right track and, you know, how we were going to pay our bills.
1: Lord, how is this all going to work out?
2: Yeah, and what's the outcome of all this? It was not clear to me even to the end until I wound up here in God's good grace.
1: And still, day by day, you know, we're dependent on the providence of God and His sustaining mercies, and
2: Yeah, we've been led through those temptations. We all, every believer has trials and temptations of life, which are designed to refine us, to drive us back in faith in him and show that he's faithful, to remind us that he's faithful. We've seen it ourselves. And so we come out of that more confident in our faith that he is our Heavenly Father who loves us and will care for us, as Jesus teaches us. Now we keep praying this because you never know what's going to happen to you today or tomorrow. We walk by faith, and you know tragedy could strike us, any one of us, and does. So we walk by faith in our pilgrimage. And this is a very practical prayer in verse 11, grant to us our daily bread. And then in the form in Luke 11, it says, Day by day, grant us that bread we need day after day, and I think it. I think the Lord delights to show His faithfulness that day by day He's going to provide for us every day, day after day after day. He doesn't forget us. It's not like He goes to sleep and oh, I'm sorry, I forgot about your needs this week. I'll give you double next week. You know, He He just doesn't do that. He never sleeps or falls into a trance or something. <laughs> you don't have to wake him up. Isn't that Elijah and you know, the priests of Baal have to clap and shout to wake up their God.
1: The next petition is just as practical, forgive us our debts, and Matthew even puts it in a very sort of earthy, practical way, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so just as we're tempted not to uh, go to the Lord with our practical needs, it's an equally great, maybe greater temptation not to go to him and to confess our sins. Because debts here is a metaphor, right? Yes. For our transgressions. That's right. What does it mean to go to the Lord and confess our sins? For example, earlier I mentioned Daniel 9 as a, a paradigm or as a model for confession of sin.
2: It's a very good question. It drives you back to 1 John chapter 1 where we're told to confess our sins. And the form there, it makes clear that we have to continue to come back and when we sin to confess them. It shows a number of things. It shows, one, that we still are in this age and struggling with sin. So this prayer is a declaration of the Lord, forgive us, we are devoted to turning from sin and to ourselves sanctifying your name because we are your followers and when the world looks at us, they see you. So may your name be sanctified in our lives as we turn away from sins and live uprightly before you. It is a acknowledgment that we're dependent upon our Father for the forgiveness of sins, not on our works. Notice that we don't substitute. Forgive us our sins because we've forgiven, or forgive us our debts because we forgive those who have sinned against us. It's as we do that. It's third, a reminder that Jesus calls us to be like him and be like our Heavenly Father which is actually how chapter 5 ends in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. You will be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we imitate our Father by forgiving others, just as he forgives us. So it's a reminder to us, at which we remind ourselves before God in prayer, that we are to be forgiving people like he is. We're to grow in our imitation of him and be like him, as one who extends forgiveness freely because of Christ. And then finally, it really expresses our dependence upon Christ for the forgiveness of our debts. They're not because we've done anything, but in faith, we offer this prayer, expecting him to forgive us. And in Christ, all of our sins are forgiven. But we live on earth and we need to daily come back to the fountain of our
0: forgiveness of Christ. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
1: And so first of all, then, we have to know what sin is, and we have to know that is the transgression of the law of God, or any want of conformity unto, as we say in the Westminster Standards, the law of God. So there's an objective standard by which sin is measured. It isn't anything that anyone says. In other words, people can't just make up a moral standard and then say, well, you've broken that, therefore you've sinned. And yet there is a standard, God's law, summarized in the Ten Commandments and summarized for us in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So we have a standard and we have a definition that is transgression of that. And then Jesus here, our Lord, seems to assume that we know when we've sinned, which is sort of interesting. It means that when we go to him, we go to him with a consciousness of our sins. This petition assumes that we know what sin is, and we go to him with a consciousness of our sins, and then in our confessional standards, we make a distinction between a general confession and then a particular confession of particular sins.
2: That's a good distinction.
1: As a Christian who prays, what is your experience of confessing particular sins? I have the sense as a pastor and talking to believers that sometimes this is a struggle. Why would it be a struggle?
2: Maybe you could ask the practical theology people that. (laughs) Okay. It would only be a struggle if you don't believe you sin, maybe, or you're not aware of your sin. Why don't you answer the question? So, Dr. Clark, why is it that some people are reluctant to confess their sins?
1: Don't you think it's something like the reluctance to ask for help, the admission of weakness, of need, of of frailty, and perhaps even to some degree fear, which then gets us back to our initial address of the Lord, our Father, who art in heaven? Sometimes I think it's tempting to see God as a judge, and so much so that we're afraid to come to him. Isn't that why in the history of the church people have set up additional mediators?
2: Yeah, someone who is a lot kinder and more accessible, you know, a saint that you imagine can intervene for you. Well, we haven't someone to intervene for us. It is Jesus, who can sympathize with us, Hebrews 2, because he's been tempted in all ways that we are yet without sin. So he can be a sympathetic high priest who can relate to us and intervene for us and provide an effective intervention, namely his blood.
1: It was God the Son standing there in the presence of the disciples who told them, who taught them to pray, forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us.
2: And still stands at the right hand of the Father intervening for us in his incarnate person.
1: So as we go to the Father to confess our sins, we don't do so without an intercessor. And we're not on our own, as it were. And if we are believing in Jesus and in his finished work, then we don't go to him as a matter of judgment or acceptance with God. We go as those whose sins have been forgiven, and yet who, as pilgrims, on the way... Continue to sin and struggle with sin and continue to need to acknowledge that before the Lord and repent of it and turn away from it and ask for grace.
2: And it should be encouraging to us that Jesus knows that and embedded here a prayer that acknowledges that that will be our experience as pilgrims. We will still need to come to Him and ask forgiveness. But then look at the last part of verse 12 as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Well, now we're freed. It doesn't really matter what they've done to us. In the end, we've been forgiven. So now we are free in love to extend forgiveness to others because now we have nothing to lose, as it were. We have everything, having the Son, and free and full forgiveness. And so it spills over into our lives and our relations with others, into where now we can be loving and forgiving toward one another as those who have themselves been washed and purified.
1: Paradoxically, people have often been tempted to think that in order to get people to be good, we have to make them think that they have to do their part, whatever that part is, in order to present themselves to God. And the reality here, as reflected in the Lord's Prayer, is, as you just suggested, exactly the opposite. It is those who are freely accepted for Christ's sake who are actually free to be gracious, forgiving, and to be godly,
2: that's exactly right. That's the secret of sanctification right there, is the gospel. The secret of growing as a holy child of God is to focus on being a child of God by grace through faith alone.
1: But we don't have to pretend that we have it all together. We can be honest with God.
2: We can be honest with God, which we have to be, and we can be honest with one another. And when we, and we can freely forgive and ask forgiveness from others as well. I mean, that could be implied here.
1: And on reflection, it is sort of foolish to think that we can pretend that God doesn't see our sins. Now, we can say that there is a judicial legal sense in which he doesn't see our sins. But in his providence, we have to affirm that God sees our sins and knows who we are and what we are. And so the idea that we can mask that from him and pretend that he doesn't, well, that's just foolish. But we are tempted to think that way sometimes
2: there's a lot of foolishness in our thinking. I'm sorry when you were saying that, I, I can't help but think. Being a first century person, you know, <laughs> my first thought is Zeus, the god of the Greeks, masking his adulteries with a fog so that his wife won't see. Yeah. So here's a god who is masking his sins by creating some sort of misty fog so that his wife won't see what he's doing. And that just strikes me as so childish.
1: It's the blindness of paganism, right?
2: Yes, it is. And so Jesus teaches us here that we can be open with God because he sees us. But also he is, you're always driven back to that. He is our heavenly father, someone who loves us. You know, go back to verse 8. He knows your need before you ask for it. And then later in the Sermon on the Mount, and he'll take care of you. He cares for you. You are valuable to him. So you approach him knowing that, knowing that you're not inherently valuable, but because of his great love in Christ Jesus, he cares for you as a Father does his children, tender and kind to all who fear his name.
1: And he gets to the root of sin, doesn't he, in the next part when he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or sometimes the evil one.
2: Both would be appropriate. Both make sense since this world is under the dominion of the evil one still. He has a great impact in those around us who are still lost in sin and followers of the evil one but also evil, you know, the evil that can befall us. This, by the way, verse 13, this just shows you the whole pilgrim idea. He's leading us. So this is Psalm 23, you know, lead us as a good shepherd. Don't lead us down the path that leads to where we would fall into traps and temptations beyond what we can bear.
1: Preaching is so important because it's foolish, according to the scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. or We don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear his word as it's written and apply it to the hearts and minds of God people and so the by the power of the Holy Spirit when the pastor is doing his work faithfully the Word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's
0: people Westminster Seminary California wscal.edu. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church.
1: And Jesus knew something about directly facing temptation, about confronting it, and a potentially powerful and persuasive temptation took him up to a high place and showed him all the cities of the world and essentially offered them to him. And unlike us, our Lord looked at that temptation and looked at the tempter, the liar. And rebuked him and repudiated him using the Word of God.
2: Yep, he sure
1: did. For us.
2: And so we now are praying this because we're walking in his footsteps.
1: With his help, in union with him, in his grace. And here it's also interesting, isn't it, that our Lord is so honest, if you will, so direct about the nature of sin. Yes. Forgive us our debts and then lead us not into temptation. You know, James reflects on the nature of the relationship between temptation and sin. You know, we look at things, we think about things, we sort of play with them, we sort of toss them about in our minds, and then you know before you know it, one thing leads to another and sin has gestated and been born, and then we commit it, and so our Lord is getting right at the root of the whole thing here, isn't he? By addressing temptation.
2: Yeah. But notice how the solution is not self-help, three steps. Here's a magic potion. Here are some guaranteed words that I will give you that will turn away all temptation. But really, it's a reliance upon the Lord that he will guide us, calling upon the Lord to deliver us and to direct our steps that we may turn aside from these things with his help. By faith.
1: Now, in Matthew and in Luke, the Lord's Prayer ends here. But frequently when we say it, as we find it in the, for example, in the Heidelberg Catechism and in the sort of traditional form in which we know the Lord's Prayer, there is a doxology appended to the Lord's Prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Yes. But it's not here in the English Standard Version. It's not here in our Greek text that you and I both have before us. So how should we think about this doxology at the end of the prayer that we use?
2: The doxology is not in our earliest Greek manuscripts of Matthew or of Luke. It is found in later manuscripts, and it's found in places where it seems pretty clear it was added for the sake of use in the church. And for that reason, it's probably best to think of those words as not in this text. However, I've never had a problem saying those words because they're biblical. If you want to see these words in their original form, it's the prayer of David as he's about to turn over his kingship to Solomon in 1 Chronicles 29, particularly in verse 11. Uh, most people extend it down to 1 Chronicles 29, 11 through 13. If I could read those words, yeah, English Standard Version. I'll read verse 10, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. And notice how there's a connection here, if I can interject this, a connection with Jesus' prayer, our Father. So David says, our Father. So you have a natural connection between this text and the prayer that Jesus taught in Matthew 6. Now verse 11, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. So this is really a summary of that Element in David's prayer was brought into it by uh, people using the Lord's Prayer in worship and combined with what the Lord teaches here. So, you know, what you're basically doing is combining two texts of scripture that relate to one another in one place. I think you have biblical warrant for that. I think the apostles do that. Well, actually, the Gospel of Mark opens that way. He talks about, as the prophet says, and he references Isaiah. But then the quotation is actually from several prophets. So he's combining text to show all of these words are really fulfilled here. Likewise, you have here bringing in these words from David's prayer into this prayer and making those words our own as well. Basically because it brings to the conclusion the opening of the prayer focusing on the Lord's kingdom. So it has a kind of nice finish to it, as as long as you realize that you're praying biblical concepts and words from another place in Scripture. Now, the reason why I don't have a problem with this is... I don't think the Lord was saying, if you pray these words exactly, they will have a magical effect.
1: Relative to the whole Lord's Prayer.
2: Right. So instead, you see, this is a model. We can pray these words, but it's not because they're magic. This gets into your initial question as we were talking, and that is, should we pray these words exactly? I think we should, as well as expand on them on our own with you know, our own confession of particular sins, with our own requests beyond, you know, daily bread, and even extend the first part, you know, tell the Lord how we want his kingdom to come and all the glory we want to see accrue to him, you know, pile up for him in this world and in the next. So I think we do both. We use this as a model for our prayers, but we also use this because particularly in our weakness, you know, we want a kind of foundation for, understanding and meditating and developing on, because I think when you pray this particular prayer, as in the congregation that I'm a part of, we do pray this prayer every Lord's Day, and I find it very important part of our worship. It's where I and the whole congregation are praying out loud personally, and not just mediating prayer of the pastor, but to hear these little five-year-olds reciting with me this prayer. It's the congregation in with one voice. See, we couldn't do that if we're all using our our own words. But with one voice, we're praying this prayer. And then you simply have to train yourself to concentrate on the words because they're familiar to us and we can recite it from memory. We tend to overlook the words, but you just train yourself to
0: concentrate on what you're praying think about them. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
1: And this gets us to the whole question of catechesis instruction. You mentioned five-year-olds. Well, this happens through what we call catechism or Christian instruction of covenant children who are taught the basics of the Christian faith. And historically, in a Reformed catechism, there are three things. There is the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. Those are the three basic parts of a Reformed catechism, and historically, our young people actually memorized those things, as well as questions and answers about them in order to understand them. So actually learning this prayer is an important part of Christian development, and I think we can even say of sanctification, of part of the process of being conformed to the image of Christ.
2: I agree. (laughs) You said it, man. Amen.
1: As we draw this two-part series on the Lord's Prayer to a conclusion, help us to think a little bit about how the Lord's Prayer and prayer in general functions as a way that the Lord uses to help us grow in our Christian life and to become more like Christ.
2: There are two immediate answers to that from just what we've spoken of in Matthew 6 here, the Lord's Prayer as a Here's here. The first is it orients our life to God's great project of the new creation, to the kingdom of God. It orients us to our life is part of a greater movement that has cosmic significance. People today tend to think of their lives as small, perhaps, and insignificant. Every believer including those five-year-olds and younger who are members of that congregation, are precious in his eyes and are part of a great movement of pilgrimage to accomplish God's will in this world. So we all contribute, and the Lord's Prayer orients us to that, and so it reminds us what we're part of. A Christian church is not a country club and it's not a self-help group and it's not a just a happy place with people of like mind it is a place where God meets with us every Lord's day who calls upon us with his demands as well as pours his rich blessings out upon us. And I think that leads into the second thing. He has demands upon us, and this reminds us of, for example, our need to confess our sins, to look to him, to rely upon him as pilgrims on the way, that he is our Father. We look to him day by day, moment by moment, hour by hour. He is the one who leads us as a great shepherd. So this prayer drives us back to the Lord. It is interesting, isn't it, that all the elements of Christian worship focus on driving us back to the Lord. <laughs> I think particularly the sacraments, they're, you know, Christ-centered. They always bring you back to the Lord, the means that He's given to us, to grow in holinesses. You start by looking at His holiness and what He's
0: given us and all the rich treasure of grace. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscaledu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.